Hello and welcome to The New Methodology, a special five-episode podcast collaboration between me, e.g. Sam McClary, and me, Free State's Adam Scott. Ooh, I know what you're thinking. That sounds bloody interesting. I'll definitely listen to that. But what is The New Methodology? Well, Sam, let me explain. So, The New Methodology is our little look at what some people might think is the softer side of property. We're going to look at a built environment, not from a square footage or bricks and mortar perspective, but starting with an understanding of people and time well spent. The human element, perhaps, of property, a new way to build back better. And we'll be aiming to speak with a couple of guests on each episode that might have different approaches to enable a discussion that we hope you'll find interesting, insightful, and perhaps even entertaining too. Which brings us rather elegantly to our first conversation, a conversation around culture, art, drama, dance, music, food, sport, and how these vital shared experiences could or should be central to place. It's a fascinating conversation that looks to the importance of exploration, journey, and return on experience, and so much more. We hope you enjoy it. Today we're here to talk about the role that culture plays in the development of place and where better to start with that conversation uh, than with Ros Morgan of Heart of London Bid and Matt Howe of Federation Square who's joining us from Melbourne and where better to start than with a big question it's always the best place to start and I'm going to throw to my very wonderful co-host Mr Adam Scott to ask that first big question. Oh, the big question. Well, so, Matt, here's one for, for you, for a 12,000 mile away question. So, you know, Melbourne is often spoken of as you know, the event capital of the world. And, you know, you've had your hand in that. And so I'm interested in how great places, particularly the DNA of great places, can be inspired by the rich program of activities. And I suppose I'm particularly talking about whether we're inspired by curation as the foundation of everything that happens thereafter. What do you think about that? Well, I think, Adam, I think that we're very sports here in Melbourne. We, we have a plethora of, of opportunity. We have sports, we have arts, we have whole cultural experiences that go throughout our entire CBD. So if, if the exploration of what people do is one of the biggest things that we have in Melbourne, and the proximity of those precincts are amazing. They're within walking distance. And so what we actually find ourselves is we're challenged by the fact of how we create those journeys and how we actually allow people through, whether it's digital or whether it's through wayfinding or whether it's through just general precinct making on how you allow people to explore the city. Uh, that's that's probably our single biggest challenge. You and I have spoken about it before. So all channels working together, because you often talk about it in terms of it's not so much about kind of architectural landscape it's about all the enablers and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that because you're very wonderfully neutral about that which I think sounds like a great strength. I think that's the key you've got to be neutral and um, you need to understand your sense of placemaking and where you stand within the city and when you enable the city and um, the city of Melbourne does a fantastic job of exactly that the, the conversation about curating your experience 
this weekend, what would you like to go and do and take your family into the city in a post-COVID world as well in a safe and meaningful way and then actually enjoy uh, the, the various activities that you have? How, how do we do that? beyond our red line and beyond our boundaries. I think I think that's the, the single biggest challenge for a number of precincts, how a sporting precinct connects to an arts precinct, how an arts precinct sets to the city precinct. Uh, that they're, they're the types of challenges that we have in Melbourne. But the great news is we're seeing that. It's an emerging thing that people do no matter what. And, and we saw a, a great example this morning is there's between three to 500 kids from schools on our forecourt exploring the city. So the, yeah, so the schools program has returned to the Melbourne CBD to explore. And I think that, that, that concept of exploration is, is, is very critical on how we look at placemaking. I think that's that's really interesting, isn't it? And you know, sort of uh, Australia is a little bit ahead of us in in coming out of this the situation that we're in at the moment. And 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 Ros, we we are not. We are still very quiet in in London, in the in the heart of London, um, that you look you look after, and the you know uh, the the real centre of culture around arts and, and entertainment anyway. And I wonder if you could talk us um, a little bit through how. I guess how we're going to bring that experience back um, to the to the heart of London and and the role of of those cultural um, pulls in that. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm often asked, you know, how has the pandemic impacted on the West End? And basically, I can sum it up in one sentence: we've lost 92% of our footfall. Um, so we are doing everything and planning everything that we possibly can to try to drive that footfall back as soon as you know lockdown ends. Um, but for I mean, for us, the West End, you know, it's it's about culture and art, isn't it? And it re- that is the real key driver into to London's West End and. The pandemic, I think, has brought about has a, an absolute focus on how critical the role uh, culture plays in people's lives and in the West End ecosystem and actually in the UK's kind of global status. And consequently, you know, we're we're now looking at what role culture will play the, and it's going to play a critical role in kind of driving London's West End and the wider UK uh, recovery. Um, you know, talking about facts, I'll, I'll throw a few out there myself, but four out of five tourists say they, they come into to London for its culture and they spend about £7.3 a year. And that generates roughly £3.2 for our economy and supports about a quarter of a million jobs. So, I mean, it it's significant. Um, and what the, the crisis has shown is that you know, we've got this incredibly unique blend of uh, culture and hospitality and leisure and retail and really successful kind of business space. Um, and that's really what gives the West End its kind of global competitive advantage. And that's well documented. But what hasn't been well documented has been um, how much all of those sectors success hinge around culture. Um, and we commissioned a report by Arup um, uh, and to look at, you know, what's the value of art and culture in the West End and the impact of the pandemic. 
Um, and we and the key headlines of that was that you know the West End's art and culture sector has a gross value added amount of about 4.8 billion, and that was in 2018. So that's 23% of um, the sectors I put in London. But when we looked at the scenarios of, you know, what will the impact of the pandemic be? The worst case scenario that we looked at was repeated lockdowns, which we never thought back then we'd get to. But here we are. Um, and the the warning and the alarm um, alarming stats that we got from that report was that we could lose something like 1.6 billion in the period between 2020 and 2024. Um, and that's 70% lower than what we would have been generating by that with this sector had the pandemic not happened. So, I mean, cult, that's just kind of a snapshot of how important for us culture is in drawing people into the West End. Rosa, on, on that point, I mean, I'm interested in, I suppose, one of the things that I often see that happens too often is when people are thinking about their, how we design cities, how we design developments, there's culture is this thing, this value add thing that is spoken of. But I think we're beginning to see now that surely the things that are going to attract us back to the city, it will be inspired by culture, but also the great big rich mix. And I think actually it strikes me that developments will need to be less monolithic and more interested in all the things we do together that will be a rich mix of their, you know, there'll be retail, there'll be hospitality, there'll be leisure, there'll be workplace, there'll be arts, there'll be culture, there'll be education. What do you think about that as a seeds of recovery? Look, I, I think that, you know, we need to be fair to the real estate industry. And I think um, that that industry has for a long time recognised um, that places, they need to be created for people because without people, they're just spaces, aren't they? Um, and I think the industry ha already understands the importance of, you know, knowing what people want or need and then, you know, designing their spaces to address those needs. Um, and ultimately, that's what creates a place's identity and personality. So I, to be honest, I, I do think that the, the, the industry already recognised that. But with the pandemic, I think there's no doubt that the industry is going to have to look again at their places just to, to you know, to make sure that it's um, in tune with some of the new attitudes to life that, you know, as we come out of lockdown and into the future, you know, I think absolutely um you know this period of crisis has allowed us all to kind of take stock of our lives and decide what's most important to us and i think we absolutely need to ensure that that is reflected in the overall proposition and the overall offer but i do i do believe that you know cities you know they are harnessing the role of culture and creativity you know to de define themselves and their areas and you know they're trying to create places that are vibrant and tolerant and attractive places you know for for everyone not just tourists but to live work and um, explore and also invest as well. Matt I mean that thought of the cultural hub and all the things that could happen there as a generator of creating a great city centre sounds a bit like your brief for Federation Square how are you supercharging that post-pandemic? I see that as an excellent point. We we saw ourselves as the barometer of Melbourne and how the community responded to coming back to a CBD. So, so in our sense, what we were interested in is making sure that we created spaces that people could explore, but at the same time escape, um, which is probably the wrong word in a precinct-shaping way. You want, you want to attract people, not allow people to escape. 
And that's exactly what we did. So part of our healing process, um, talking about the CBD and how people come back into the high density communities was how do we create environments that people feel safe to go to, but at the same time feel safe to get out of if if they felt uncomfortable. And and that's what we see ourselves as, as doing. So we put our people first and we, and we delineated spaces and we did we did and we're very lucky that we we have a very large precinct that we can do that. We also looked at how we support our commercial elements of that and how we enable our commercial tenants to 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 actually create dining inside out and actually revert their business model to allow them to do that. And we invested very heavily in that to ensure that they could do that. But that really goes back to that cultural sensitivity about feeling safe to go to place. And I think that's a very important piece. And if we look back at um, prior to COVID, we look at our other place of mass gatherings was the issue around um, fear of terrorism, fear of risk, fear of things like that. So how do you make people feel safe in big areas with with large community? And that's exactly how we did it. I love this idea of, and I haven't really thought about it before, I'm a little bit ashamed to say that, but I love this idea of really thinking about exploration when we're creating places and routes in and, in and out. And I think that comes back to a word that is too often used, I think, but maybe not um, utilised enough, which is is this um, collaboration. And you talked about it, Matt, with the, you know, not just thinking inside your red line, you know, how you how you interact with with different people. And I wonder, I wonder as we as we come back and we create safe places and, and healthy places and um, explorable places, how we really utilize people in in delivering delivering that. It's a great question to have. We we actually have that very first test this Thursday night, tomorrow night, in fact where the Melbourne Cricket Ground will host uh, what we call round one of the Australian Football League. Uh, and it's exceptionally big, 50,000 people. That's pretty big in a, in a post-COVID um, element. And so where we talk about community behaviour and community elements, that's where we talk about interaction points and we talk about touch points all the way along. Um, how how do you feel safe? And I, I think that's, again, going back to beyond the red line. So my experience going to an event actually starts when I leave home. It doesn't start when I get to the doorstep of a stadium or arena or, or something like that. It starts when I get from home to the bus I might, might catch or the car I might drive or whatever it is. And then we, we break it down. We break it down in minutia all the way. I think that acknowledgement, going back to Adam's point, is how you engage with that wider community, whether it's transport hubs, whether it's um, whether it's you know, arena hubs, sporting venues, whatever it is, how you engage with those those organisations in how we can make the community feel safe to come back to what we are seeing as mass public um, spaces. That's what we're missing uh, at the moment. I mean, it's the same for us. Um, you know, I, I think the the single biggest barrier 
to people traveling into central London is the fear of catching COVID on the public transport. Now, that's not factually accurate. Um, and in fact, um, I believe that the Imperial College, which is completely independent of Transport for London, have carried out all sorts of audits and haven't actually found a single piece of evidence, um, you know, that there's been any kind of COVID um, on their transport system. But that doesn't matter because it's what people you know, think rather than what's true. And so for us, um, there is a job to do and we are working in partnership with our uh, Transport for London and the City of London, the Mayor's Office, government, and of course, London and Partners, which is the communications agency for London as well, because it's really important that we, first of all, make the place safe. So in the West End, you know, we're we're power washing it within an inch of its life. You know, we're you know, we're, we're we've got hand sanitizers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's important the transport system is able to do the same thing so that when people are ready to come back, we need to be able to communicate that. Um, and you're, you're, you're right. It really is from the minute they leave their front door right through to their destination. They need to feel safe in that environment. And for us in the West End, you know, a lot of our offer is behind closed doors and very beautiful closed doors the architecture is in incredible that's an attraction in itself and hopefully will bring a lot of people back just to kind of walk the streets but what we're, what we're really focusing on is bringing the inside out and so you know we've got a whole program of art and culture where you've got the royal academy of art and the national gallery instead of people having to go into into their their um their buildings where they they may still have reservations about doing that you know maybe the first visit we've we've brought it outside and that's where it's really important that you tie up with your public realm and um, because we really want to bring events and activities and um sculptures and art and and design out onto the streets then it's really important that the public realm allows for that and so our play shaping strategy has been on turbo charge as we try to kind of create more space for people in an area that has been traditionally built around vehicles um and and so that's been a really interesting um move forward especially for the local authority um and for transport for london to tackle I think it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Imagining you supercharging that strategy, because when, when you speak like that, I mean, it strikes me that what we're designing and thinking about here is journeys rather than destinations. And we're thinking much more about an incidental audience that's wandering around. And I think in many ways, even though we talk about it as a post-COVID scenario, in many ways, I think a lot about what goes wrong with cities is it becomes about lots of destinations trying to compete with one another. But actually, if we thought about it as a flowing series of journeys, if we storyboarded it rather than created a master plan of red lines against red lines, I would imagine we'd all more easily have a culture of partnership. And have I gone too far there or does that resonate? No, you haven't gone too far. Um, I think, again, what this crisis has done is probably turbocharged that idea where, you know, <laughs> 
I wouldn't say we've all been resting on our laurels, but to some extent we've been comf too comfortable and we're worried about our own areas. Um, you know, we've all got jobs and we've all got, you know, to demonstrate our, our worth and our value and especially in the bid industry uh, where you need to demonstrate return on investment. But certainly in my experience, what the crisis has created is true partnership and I always challenge the word partnership it drives me bonkers when I hear people talking about partnership or it has done until now because it's just a word that people have bandied about and you know thinking that it's um, the right thing to say whereas the crisis has forced us to work alongside one another and I really genuinely have built up more true partnerships over the course of the last 12 months than I have in my entire 20-year career in doing this um, and also you you know, we've got a mayor of London and they, he's got an office um, and they have a huge responsibility of corralling us all and bringing us all together to, to recognise exactly what you described, that we these red boundaries, these red lines, you know, our consumers don't recognise them. Um, so how is it that we work together because we're not in competition with one another? Sorry, Melbourne, we're in competition with you and Paris and Tokyo and all of the other big cities. And I do think there's been a huge recognition of that. Um, so for people that perhaps undervalued that before, there, there's there's no doubting it now. We need to to join up. I guess I'm in fierce agreement with Ros. Like, it's exactly right. Our competition is very different now. And we we are we talk about livable cities as an example. Um, Post-COVID, that's a really important point, and we're seeing it here in Australia, where a lot of people are actually moving from from metropolitan areas into regional areas, and and getting into what they feel like is a comfort zone, and I think um, that that creates activation issues for us. Um, how do we get people back to our central business districts is a, a critical important part, and it's not just about providing activation it's more about providing recognition that it's a safe place to go that's the right place to go so we 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 most certainly seeing that and and certainly in melbourne um we're, we're less than 50 percent of our public transport uh kind of generation at the moment so people um to give you a context our new peak hour is actually a wednesday morning so that's that's very different to what, a traditional what transport. What was it previously? It used to be a um a, a Tuesday morning AM peak, um, and it's now gone to a Wednesday day, the entire day. Oh. So it's not actually even a morning peak anymore or an afternoon peak. It's actually the entire day. Um, our peak hour actually has gone from a 5 p.m. to a 3 p.m. So it's a very radical shift, isn't it, in in people's behaviour? And something I've observed, because I've I've caught public transport each day, um, is that people are still doing work on laptops on the train on their way home. So that fundamentally changes the thinking of the city, and whether or not that's um, a long term element or not, I'm not sure. I mean, this thing about time is really interesting, isn't it? That, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, journey, time, experience is different from destination and space and environment. And I think, you know, there is, it, it just, well, maybe I'm just so, it's too obvious to me because I only ever say the same things. But it strikes me that that's, 
that's the balance that we need to get right because we fiercely agree that stepping forward working in partnership having all enablers working together but i think we need to it needs to be program led as much as it's place led and i i wonder what you think about that in terms of i suppose yes yeah, starting with time and designing with time in mind you know ros will that help with your partnerships if we start focusing on what are we going to do about thursday rather than what are we going to do about that particular space i mean to be honest with you we uh, we we we're lobbying for something that i think we should have had a long time ago in an international shop and district like the west end we want sunday trading <laughs> um so in terms of time you know we're still battling some of these um you know, hang ups from the past, really. Um, and so I think time is really important, especially when it comes to the workforce. Um, you know, obviously, central London and, and especially the West End, we, we have about five, uh, half a million jobs and 95 percent of those people commute. Um, and you've probably been on the train just like me and you're usually nose to nose and I don't think that many of us want to go back um, to, to that to that way so I do think that time and um, employers will have a, a large role to play in perhaps trying to level out kind of peak travel um, so this idea of flexible working, hybrid working, I actually think is a good thing. Um, you know, there's lots of talk about the return of the workforce. Will they come back? They will. And the office sector will continue to 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 be successful in the West End. We haven't really seen any drop in um, occupancy. Instead, it's about how the space will be used. And again, that's reflected. That is that is to reflect employers attitudes to life and what they value you know this work-life balance so from a workforce point of view I think that is easier to manipulate if you like by working with the large employers and trying to balance out this um, peak travel for the tourist um, however I think they'll just turn up whenever they want to um, but we need to make room for them and um, in, in terms of recovery especially we need to give our um, our businesses every opportunity to recoup the losses that they have experienced over the course of the year. But for me, um, just going back on something that was said earlier, for me, the culture aspect and the proposition, the overall proposition of the destination that is the West End is still attractive. I, I hate the idea of people thinking that it was all a disaster. Actually, let's reflect on why we were so successful in the West End, and we are, and that's because we are the West End, and we do offer this offer this experience and opportunity for spontaneity, and that's is that is as attractive to the worker as it is to the tourist. So let's not forget, you know, I work in the West End because I'm drawn in by its kind of authentic offer, but also because you've made it when you're in the West End, you know, it's this kind of globally revered profile. You know, if you've if you if you're working in the West End, you know, you've made it in your career type of thing. And and also for investors, that's really important. Culture is what allows us to stand out from the crowd. And it's the authenticity of that um, offer, especially um, in the West End, where we can relate it back to our heritage as well. So, you know, I, I've got no concerns that London and the West End will bounce back. It's just a matter of how quickly.
listening to all of this, it's made me think that um, oftentimes in in the you know the little world that I w- write about of, of real estate, we think about the habitat, um, you know, the places um, that are that are built and and designed. And actually, what we should be thinking about is the habits of yeah. of people, how how people spend their time, what excites them, how they move around. And if we focus on the habits then we'll create the habitats that are, are are right for for them and I just wonder if that's a maybe it's you know maybe I'll, I'll try and say methodology again maybe our new methodology is changing the language maybe maybe um I think you know it is it is about creating a space to suit the people that want to use it and vice versa it's a bit of a, um, a circular thing isn't it um the challenge that we've got um in somewhere like the West End in terms of habitats or um, it being a livable space is that the West End is unique because we don't have very many residents in it and so therefore you can put the big bold brash exciting bright lights you know um, that actually wouldn't be acceptable in a place where you've got people trying to sleep and and to reside and so I'm also interested in this idea of horses for courses and there's lots of conversation around you know the whole Paris um, methodology where everybody should live 15 minutes from the city centre but I'm I don't agree with that necessarily um I I believe that somewhere like the West End has a it has a, a part to play and it's the part the place that we can all go and just you know release um enjoy explore and in a in a a way that you just can't do in a residential area and that includes our nighttime economy too definitely agree with that and I think um if you look back to all the studies of um your post-war post that it's all about entertainment and it's all about um access to entertainment if we look in Melbourne, one of the biggest things that we've done, we just announced how the Harry Potter um, the, you know, the experience is now reopened now in Melbourne. The Mariner Theatre Group has now reopened the theatres. Um, we, we, so, so culturally what happens during, and it's almost like if you go back through post-depression, post-global um, yeah, financial crisis, people are looking for experiences. So what we've seen, um, I've seen it, personally at Fed Square is that we've seen a huge uptake in cultural experiences going into galleries and uh, into Acme and places like that. So experience emergence is really important because let's face it, it's it's accessible, um, but it's, it, it's really culturally diverse. And that's a great thing. So if you go back, you can go back decades and you can actually see the same thing has happened. Sports, arts, it's, it's a very common theme that keeps coming through that. And what we, what our role is, is to provide that platform for those people to go and do that. And that that's what we're seeing now in a post-COVID recovery. How, how do I enable a school group to come in, to have a look at ACME, to come to our Koori Heritage Trust and go to the National Gallery of Victoria and just dwell and enjoy it and culturally suck it up. And that's um, that's what exactly is happening. That's exactly what Ros is explaining is that's the West End. The, the second we can have a show back in the West End, 
I've got many, many friends who uh, are performers that, yeah, the second that happens, it kind of it, it culturally reignites country because it says we're back on. It does. And mm-hmm. that, that it's critically important. That was really interesting um, the, when you're saying it kind of almost it switches the West End back on the minute that the theatre and live uh, performance venues open. And, um, you know, as we came out of our previous lockdowns, um, where we had this kind of staggered uh, reopening of the sectors, I can tell you from on the ground, um, our businesses were waiting until the theatre sector could open. Those that didn't wait, um, maybe did it out of absolute necessity, but actually I think a lot of them um, this time round will reconsider whether they will open their doors when government says they can, or whether they will wait and hold off until we have the full shebang, you know, the whole, um, the light switched back on. And by that, I do genuinely mean all of that kind of cultural offer, because what we very quickly re- recognise is the interdependency and the, and how much, cult they, you know, our, our pubs and our clubs and our restaurants and our hotels actually relied on that cultural audience. And quite frankly, without it, what was the point of coming in um and so it'll be interesting just to see how we progress out of this lockdown but you know the question that I'm asked continuously is Roz when will the theatres open and then it's almost that's how they're going to make their judgment call and when the hotels will open and and when the restaurants and bars etc will open um I mean our objective ultimately is to create a space that's safe, like you say, that's accessible um, and that's affordable. And I think affordability is a a huge aspect of this as well. Um, We're very lucky here in the UK, especially London, where a lot of our galleries are free to the public. But there's a lot that isn't free. And, you know, that often creates barriers to, to for new audiences, for example. And so we're, you know, this whole idea of bringing the art and culture out onto the streets so that it is free and accessible for everyone. And so it genuinely is culture for all. There's a real, um, you know, joint kind of interest in, in, in developing this now, not least because it may well create new audiences for for uh, sectors that are maybe struggling. And, you know, for the likes of opera, we've got the English National Opera, the, you know, the generation that traditionally likes that and enjoys it are are getting older um may not be with us for much longer so they're trying to create this new audience well if you can't get them through the door you're going to struggle so how do you do it well, you bring it out onto the streets and and you um you know you make it relative to this new audience through digital media etc it's so- about joy isn't it joy isn't it and the power that joy has in, in bringing people back and reigniting reigniting things and um you know it's the it's i mean i've it's the joy that we have through conversations like this that really show us um, how we, you know, how people actually do want to get back and be together and the power of people in defining places and, and spaces. And I love that, um, Roz, you said it, that places without people are, are just spaces. And I, I think that is something that everyone has to take on on board and particularly in our built in environment. If we're not thinking about those people, then we're not really creating anything. We're just putting brick on on brick and and without the people and without the culture and without the joy, the identity, the personality, the exploration, 
what have we really got to offer? We can't compete um, with London versus Melbourne, Melbourne uh, or Paris or, or or New York or or anywhere. So I think that's that's really really important. And that before I I carry on with that theme, I, Adam, any 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 final thoughts from you before we wrap up today's conversation? I suppose the, the, the only thought for me is that so I think. If we're going to make the very best of this knowledge, our understanding that these spaces are nothing without people, and particularly things that you were saying, Matt, about those 300 kids that are just dwelling, or Roz, you were just talking about those people out in the street just wondering, we need to find a way to value experience that's beyond a, a, a financial transaction. And I think, you know, if we can work that out now before everybody forgets about this, that would be incredibly useful. So I think, you know, a word on return on experience, I think, is what we need to clearly define here. Well, there's our challenge to our listeners today, isn't it? Give us some thought back on what the return on experience looks like and how we really value that. This has been a fascinating conversation. I wish it could carry on for, for so much longer because I think there's so much to, to dig into here. But for now, um, from myself and Adam, Ros, thank you very much. Matt, thank you very much for joining us on The New Methodology. Thank you.